Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive functions. This show is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. These conversations will introduce mental tools that will empower you to shift your mindset for a successful life. And now, here's your host, Sucheta Kamath. All right, welcome back to Full Prefrontal, where we are exposing the mysteries of executive function. I am here, as always, with our host, Sucheta Kamath. Good morning, my friend. Good to be with you, as always. So I guess I'll lead it off with this. Welcome to Holland. Yes, thank you. And it's great to be with you, Todd. So in uh, 1987, Emily Pearl Kingsley wrote a wonderful article, which I often recommend to parents. She titled it, Welcome to Holland. In in that, she writes, uh, and I'm going to quote here, when you are going to have a baby, it's like a planning a fabulous vacation trip to Italy. You buy a bunch of guidebooks and make your wonderful plans and the Colosseum, the Michelangelo's David, the gondolas in Venice. You may learn some uh, handy phrases in Italian. It's all very exciting. After months of eager anticipation, the day finally arrives. You pack your bags and off you go. Several hours later, the plane lands. The stewardess come in and says, welcome to Holland. And Holland, you say. Uh, What do you mean Holland? I signed up for Italy. I'm supposed to be in Italy. All my life, I have dreamed of going to Italy. But there's been a change in the flight plan. They have landed in Holland and there you must stay. So many of us have landed in Holland in one way uh, one or more realms of life. Are we happy there? Have we found the sights to see is the real question. What do we make of it? Using executive function is how you solve problems of life. That too, in a meaningful way, so that it helps us stay on a path to purposeful life. These skills are put to test when we experience roadblocks or face adversities. In general, executive function kick in when life throws unexpected wrench. Hence, at the heart of finding meaning in these conditions of challenge is resiliency, which means bringing into focus the adaptive shift and flexible adjustment needed to do what it takes. Finally, success comes to those who stay hopeful while exercising agency. How exactly one goes about colloquially opening another door when the first one closes? You cannot understand executive function without observing its impact beyond the individual. Having been in this profession, one challenge that keeps surfacing again and again is the invisible nature of executive function disability and societal preconceived notions about how able people do what they do. Being quick, effortless, timely, and without struggle is how we expect able people to be. And today, I want to take the opportunity to demystify this myth. Emily Pearl Kingsley ended her article by saying, I quote, but if we you spend your life mourning the fact that you didn't get to Italy, you may never be free to enjoy the very special, the very lovely thing about Holland. And that's what brings me to our wonderful guest, Dan Habib. Dan is a filmmaker at the University of New Hampshire Institute on Disability. He is the creator of award-winning documentary films, including Samuel, Who Cares About Kelsey, Mr. Connolly Has ALS, and many other films on disability-related topics. He has recently released his new documentary, Intelligent Lives, which examines our society's narrow perception of intelligence. The Intelligent Lives project has also contains four short films focusing on effective practices in transition for youth and disabilities from high school to higher education and employment. Dan has received the Champion of 
Human and Civil Rights Award from the National Education Association and the Justice for All Glassroots Award from the American Association of People with Disabilities. In 2014, Habib was appointed by President Obama to the President's Committee for People with Intellectual Disabilities. So we have Dan with us. So I'm so excited to have him. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm looking forward to speaking with you. So there are several reasons why you are on this show and on the topic of executive function, as I mentioned in my introduction, that truly I would like for you to play many roles or you know put on many hats. I have you here as a parent, a hero, and more as an inspiration to all. Life produces best melodies when real challenges invoke passion to flip the convention on its head. And that's what you did. Before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about your own childhood? Did you witness disability as you were growing up? What was the worldview that you carried about abilities, inabilities, and disabilities? Sure. Well, yes, that goes back a little while now <laughs> to think back to that time. But I actually remember it quite clearly because when I was quite young, I grew up in New Jersey in the United States. And I was in a, I remember being in a preschool when I was about four or five years old. And there was actually a boy named Richard who had a headband around his head all the time. And I, and it, it kind of set him apart because Richard was like the kid with the headband. He was different from everybody else. And I remember asking my mother one day, you know, why does Richard wear this headband, mom? And she said, well, Richard's had some ear surgeries and he has to protect his ears from, uh, you know, dust and things getting into them. And that, that satisfied it. But to me, just the fact that Richard was seen as having this huge difference because of something so really small and simple really struck with me. And throughout my elementary school and middle and high school and right into college, disability was really not a part of my world. And that's even given that I went to a university, University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, that was very active in social justice movements and civil rights, but never did I hear disability rights becoming part of the equation. It was never part of the discussion. So it really wasn't until I started work as a photojournalist and I just happened to take on one of my very first documentary stories for the newspaper was on kids with disabilities being quote unquote mainstreamed into regular classes that this whole idea of disability and inclusion really came into my radar. So what did you see when this this idea about mainstreaming, which just seems to be a desperate measure for everybody wants to see children mainstreamed, which is kind of their psychological assurance that everything is fine now. And what did you notice? Right. Well, to be honest, I would say that not everyone wants to see kids with disabilities mainstream. <laughs> Even to this day, I think there's still a lot of resistance to kids with a wide variety of disabilities being included. But during that time, I saw that this, you know, the kids, including this one boy I was really kind of featuring named Todd, was, was extremely happy and engaged being in a regular classroom. And Todd was, a, was kind of like my own son, Samuel, who I'm sure we'll talk about, has cerebral palsy, was nonverbal, but was obviously very engaged in the class and in the content. And it's around that time that I started becoming aware of this notion called the least dangerous assumption. And the idea behind that is that the least dangerous assumption you can make about someone is that they're competent, someone, particularly someone with a disability, because it's very easy to discount or write off people that don't communicate in a tr traditional or typical way or don't you know, walk in a typical way or hear in a typical way or speak in a typical way. Unfortunately, our society's stigma around disability is very deep and people with those differences often get written off or excluded. And so I saw Todd being engaged, but I also saw the friendships he was making and what he was bringing into the classroom in terms of, you know, just the engagement that other students had with him. And, and as I've come to understand this issue more deeply, I've come to see the incredible value that students with disabilities in the regular classroom have, not just for themselves, but to their peers. And I'm sure we can talk more about that. 
Yeah, I think you make this wonderful point about stigma and I immediately associate that with fear. You know, whether they're um, valid or not, they're irrational fears about either noticing disability and associating with disability or fearing disability having an impact, a particularly adverse impact on self. And mm-hmm. this is the protective mechanism that everybody wants to stay away from it. And also, I think less visible disabilities, which is where I operate a lot now that I specialize mm-hmm. with executive function, which is the incompetence in people, which is then associated with if you're not looking disabled, but you're behaving incompetently, that means you must not care about life or you are not worthy to be considered equal. And so that kind of really hurts my feelings. But as well as um, I see that it takes a lot of effort to change people's mind. So what did you notice after your photojournalism experience that by talking about Todd and bringing that to light, did you notice that people were willing to change their mind or open their hearts? Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's a great point you make. And I think it's often the adults that have the hardest time with it. I find in general, kids have no issue for the most part. They're very adaptable, especially if they've been uh, from an early age exposed to the full range of diversity of disability. And it's just like with other realities of life, right? If, if you have a community that's very diverse ethnically, then people will be much more comfortable with a very diverse ethnic environment or socioeconomic environment. Same with gender, same with sexual orientation. You know, kids who are exposed to disability very early on, it's it's nothing to them. It's just, it's part of, it, or I wouldn't say it's nothing, but it's a very natural part of their surroundings. But it's often the adults, whether it's the teachers that are fearing, I won't be able to reach this kid, or I won't know how to teach this kid, or I don't, I don't have training in special education, I can't do this. And in fact, we have found that some of the teachers that have absolutely no training in special education have been my sons and other you know, kids with disabilities, their best teachers, because they just, the ones that are just committed to finding a way to reach this child and learning more about how this child learns and what they need, what kind of supports they need to be successful and how their mind works. It's not about necessarily special education. It's just about education and trying to reach these kids. And the same with other parents. I think sometimes people are just fearful of the unknown. And particularly, as you said, students with more hidden disabilities, and I would even specifically say students with emotional and behavioral disabilities, that is probably the population that is the most feared, I would say, by teachers and students because of a lot of misconceptions. You think of an emotional behavioral disability and you think of aggression or challenging behavior or screaming, yelling, it's it's more often anxiety or depression or feelings that are, are more self-destructive than they are destructive towards anyone else. And again, those students deserve the same rights as a student with a, with a physical disability to be alongside their peers in a regular classroom with the supports they need to be successful. And I found time and time again, my son's teachers and other teachers I've met, once they have the experience of having a diverse classroom of kids with disabilities with the right supports, right? With the right supports from physical therapists, occupational therapists, speech therapists, paraprofessionals, whoever it might be, and they can be successful, it's a tremendously rewarding moment in their teaching career. Absolutely. You know, I grew up in India before I came to US. And one of the things that uh, benefits that I feel I have gained is the it was unveiling of disabilities. There was no specialized institutionalizing of people. They were all in the same community. You know, you will mm-hmm. see person and, and the handicap accessibility issues are, were, are still not sorted out in India. So, you know, people not being able to go places, but then you have five people who are helping a person go up and down the stairs because people are actually coming out of their apartments and helping people to get into rickshaws and things like that. And right. and I when I was growing up, my distant cousin actually fell and hit her head and she developed speech impairment. And of course, she was labeled as being dumb and mm. all her life. And she was excluded from 
she was considered unwell, honestly, and socially, emotionally dangerous because mm. she would laugh without a reason. She would cry without a reason. And now that right. what I know, it's called emotional lability. And in fact, my parents were wonderfully compassionate people and they kind of made us, forced us to interact and forced us to be with them with a great mm -hmm. smile. And that actually helped so much for me to have no fear, yeah. which is basically where I see a lot of people being stuck. And uh, the second point I think you made, which is very powerful to me that, you know, that the children have no problems as much as adults do. Right. And, um, there, this reminds me of a psychological experiment they did with two identical circles side by side. And one is surrounded by smaller circles and one is surrounded by larger circles. And when children are asked if the center circles, the middle circles are the same or different, it's adults who can't distinguish. But the children, adults are influenced by the outer circles. And hmm. they, based on the outer circle, if they're small, they call the one in the center surrounded by smaller circles to be large <laughs> and wow. the children are unable to distinguish the two because they don't have they haven't developed the contextual referencing and i love that experiment i always start with that when i talk about demystifying your own uh, the myths that bind you or to preconceived ideas that operate you know or create invisible forces uh, which make you inflexible <laughs> yeah well and i think you know it's important you're you're bringing an interesting study and it's important to think about and know about the research too and there's tremendous research 30 years in, in the united states that show that students with disabilities who are included in regular education classes end up having better outcomes whether it's post-secondary outcomes for college or employment relationships behavior communication across the board students who are included in regular education have better outcomes. So of course we want that, right? I mean, on every level that makes sense to have better outcomes for students with disabilities, but they're also finding more and more that students without disabilities actually can benefit academically by having more diverse classrooms by disability. There was a great study by a researcher at Vanderbilt University, Eric Carter, who took groups of students that were working together, preparing for tests and studying material together. And he would take one group that was a very diverse group of students with and without disabilities. And then he'd compare that against a group that was very monolithic. It was just students without disabilities. And he did this again and again and again with multiple groups. And in each case, the, the students without disabilities who were working alongside their peers with disabilities scored better on the tests that they were preparing for. And so he was very fascinated by this. Like, why were students in this diverse group of with and without disabilities, why were they scoring higher on the tests, the students without disabilities? And he found that the students told him, we were more engaged in the curriculum. You know, we wanted to work alongside our peers. We, we ended up explaining it and thinking about it in multiple ways so that we could all understand. We were reteaching the material. And these students scored an average of 15 points higher in their tests. So I think it's important to, to know that the academic risks are negligible or, or non-existent to students without disabilities. And also the academic benefits are actually growing. And then you think about the social and emotional benefit, because it's not school is just not about academics, right? I mean, that's important. But when we think about who we are as human beings right now in our lives, you know, not just what we do for work, but the movies we watch, the books we, we read, the friends we spend time with, the hobbies we take on, how much of that has to do with the academic experience of school versus the social and emotional experience of school. And I ask this of audiences a lot when I do public speaking, and every audience, 90, 95% say the social and emotional experience of school had a bigger impact on who we are today as a person. And if you grow up in a school that is very diverse in every way, your social and emotional growth is exponentially greater. And so that's yet another reason, I think, why you know, advocating for inclusive classrooms and schools is, is so important. Yeah, and you bring up a very important point, which has become a um, wave or at least there's 
so much awareness, uh, the SEL curriculum, the social emotional right. learning curriculum. And it's it's interesting to me that now you have to go outside or thinking that you have to now find more time or mm-hmm. extra time to pay attention to child's wholesome development. And it's such a it's a shame to me. Why are you thinking that as an outside thing? It should be. I mean, all the research in learning. In fact, uh, one of the experts I had on my you know, it's uh, his name is William Clem and he talks, he's a memory expert and learning expert. And he says that children tend to learn more when there's meaning and that passion that teacher exhibits can come through and right. can really motivate the children. But I think once the motivated children engage, children tend to retain what they're learning. And mm-hmm. so you make such a good point about this, that the point of impact is not just shallow or its radius is so va- wide. Now let's talk about Samuel. I mean, uh, sure. tell us a little bit about your personal journey, how all that came to a head when you had already done some work with uh, children with disabilities and you were not expecting to experience uh, what it will take to raise a child. Right. 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 I mean, the story I did that I mentioned earlier on mainstreaming was done back in 1991 and I didn't start having children with my wife until 1996. My first son, Isaiah, was a very typical child, actually always somewhat ahead of the curve. Always, He walked and said his first words or took his first step and said his first (laughs) words at about 10 months old. So if you know child development, that's quite young. To this day, he's a very good athlete and rock climber and, you know, has, believe me, had his own significant executive functioning challenges, but not, <laughs> but not with any particular diagnosis, just boy, boyhood is pretty much <laughs> what it came down to. But he's doing wonderful. He's graduated from college in May. And then we had our, thank you to him. Yeah, he's worked very hard for that. And then we had our second child, Samuel, in 1999. And it was just after a few months that we realized he was not developing in a typical way. You know, he was way behind in terms of trying to sit up and roll over and speak. And, you know, a long, long story that I condense here. But, you know, by the time he was about one years old, a lot of testing and assessments, we realized he had cerebral palsy. And that, if some of your listeners may or may not know, really what all that means is there's communication issues between your brain and your muscles. And it can be caused by many, many different things. It can be caused by birth injury. It can be caused by mitochondrial disorders, which is where more where Samuel's diagnosis lies. And so we quickly were thrust into this world of, wow, oh my gosh, you know, a lot of, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear, a lot of grief, frankly, of losing the, 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 the child, quote unquote, that we thought he would, we would have in terms of two kids who were developing in a typical way. And suddenly you have to really adjust your whole life. As you said, from the beginning, you know, you're in Holland instead of instead of Italy. And so my wife, thankfully, did a year-long kind of intensive leadership series on disability rights and advocacy and really understanding that wow. people with disabilities can have these incredibly full and robust and amazing lives and can be in regular schools and have great jobs and relationships and marriage and their own homes. And we very early on, we realized that was possible. I did the same leadership series right after her. She said, Dan, you have to do this. You know, we have to be on the same page. So we did it. It was actually through my current employer, the Institute on Disability at the University of New Hampshire. And, uh, and now Samuel's doing that series, by the way, at age 19. Really? Yeah. So oh my goodness, just, that's fantastic. You know, so, so I, you know, there's no way to summarize, obviously, 19 years of, of life and experience briefly, but I will say that from a very early age, we realized that we wanted Samuel more than anything to feel like he belonged, you know, that he belonged in our home, in our community, in our extended family, in our, you know, city of Concord, New Hampshire, where we live. And, and we couldn't imagine him having that sense of belonging unless he felt like he belonged in his own school right around the corner where all his friends went. So thankfully, we live in a community that is quite inclusive of kids with disabilities, but we've continued to advocate strongly you know, for full inclusion. And, and it wasn't until he was about three or four years old that I thought, well, maybe I'll do a film 
that shows this journey you know, of inclusion. And I ended up spending about three years filming our life, Samuel's life, and the lives of four of the families navigating life with a disability through education. And thank you so much for doing that. That oh, was no. so incredibly moving. Thank uh, you. My sons and I watched over the weekend. I had watched it oh, earlier. Okay. Uh, it was so moving. Thank oh, you. Oh, thanks. So that, I appreciate that. So that ended up becoming the film, as you know, including Samuel, which came out about 10 years ago. And that launched me into this whole new filmmaking career. So did you know anything about cerebral palsy before you had Sam? No, not as as much as anybody on the street. Yeah, I just knew that it was a motor issue that ended up resulting in a lot of people having trouble walking, using wheelchairs, speaking, but I knew very, very little about cerebral palsy. And as a parent, when you were trying to help him become more skilled, become better adjusted and become more ready to handle the progression of life, what did you notice? What was so hard having cerebral palsy and achieve that? Well, I mean, the physical demands on Samuel and on the family are significant. He uses a wheelchair, he uses a power wheelchair now. You know, basically the easiest way to say it is that he does everything all of us do. He just needs more help to get it done, you know? And and in terms of the physical support, it's intense. I mean, you know, every cerebral palsy is not the same for everybody, obviously. There's some people that are very mildly affected by it. Some people are more significantly affected. You know, Samuel has a, a fair amount of ability to speak. A lot of people, many people with cerebral palsy can't speak at all. Some speak very easily. It's a huge range. So I can only speak in our own case. You know, our own case, it just, the biggest, I think, challenge is that it meant navigating the world of insurance coverage and durable medical equipment and speech therapy and physical therapy and occupational therapy. And he probably has eight or nine different medical specialists. And, you know, I mean, you talk to any family member of somebody with a significant disability and we know, like we understand each other. We understand that we spend literally hours, sometimes each day, certainly many hours each week navigating things and logisticizing around things that nobody else has to worry about, no other parent has to worry about. In addition to all the things that you want to be thinking about, like participation in school and sports and friendship, but even simple things like Samuel now wants to go out on a date. And for a lot of kids, mm -hmm. that means they go out in the car and, you know, they go out on a date and, you know, it still has its own risks, of course. But, you know, for <laughs> Samuel, it's a it's a whole logistical question of like, where can they go that's accessible? How's he going to get there? Who's going to bring him there? You know, how can he be with somebody but not have somebody right next to him the whole time. You know, how can you have that level of independence? There's just so many more things to think about and worry about. So I could, you know, I could go on and on, but there's just, it's, you know, but I'll, I'll close that part with one really important comment, which is that I've asked Samuel many times since he was seven or eight years old, if you could get rid of your cerebral palsy, would you? And he has said no since he was very young. Oh. And it's because he now sees that as a part of his identity. And he's proud of that identity. He's proud of being a person with oh, a disability. He's proud of being a person with cerebral palsy. He would get rid of all the medical interventions in a second, you know, if he could, all of the course. blood draws and all the appointments we have to go through. But his own identity as a person with cerebral palsy is as inextricably linked to him as it would be to a black person who, who if you said to them, don't you want to be white or a gay person? He said, don't you yeah, want to yeah. be straight? I mean, it's, it's a part of their identity and it's a part that they should be proud of. And that's to me, that goes back to that article I, I was talking about, you know, he has arrived in Holland and he's loving it, right. he's loving the experience of it. And Holland is all he knows. Holland, and he's important. okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, someday, you know, he may never get to Italy. He'll get to lots of other places. But if Italy is the place where you're not disabled, that's not a place he will ever visit. <laughs> so can you share with us some of the most interesting or surprising interactions you have had with people when dealing with you all as a family with a, a person with disability? I'm sure those are not most savory. Not all of them are most mm -hmm. savory ones, but 
do you have something that strikes you as uh, you will wish people have a better understanding or somewhere sure. be surprised by people? Yeah. Well, I mean, first, let me say there are many, many positive things that, that happen and have happened because of Samuel's disability. Sometimes it's just simple acts of kindness, you know, people going out of their way to hold the door open or, you know, seeing Samuel waiting to meet his favorite NASCAR race car driver in, in heat and saying, you know what, why don't you go to the front of the line? It looks like you're this is hard for you, you know, or whatever it might be. Just simple things that are that are nice, that are that are kindness. You know, we appreciate that. And that happens again and again. There are certainly also some negative things. I think the biggest thing that bothers our whole family and certainly bothers Samuel a lot is when people talk to him like he's a five-year-old. And that is a very common experience. If you ask anybody who uses a wheelchair, have you, any adult, just do people still talk to you like you're a little kid? I bet you'll get 99 out of 100 people will say yes. And it's, it's, it shows how, what a stigma around disability exists that people think just because you use a wheelchair, just because you speak differently or have a limp or don't see, you know, in a typical way, if you're blind or hearing impaired, I guarantee people will talk to you like you are a little kid or they'll speak loudly or they'll speak slowly. And to me, that's the opposite of presuming competence, right? I mean, what I was talking about earlier, the least dangerous assumption, meaning you you assume someone's competent, that the idea is that you should presume competence. You meet somebody on the street who has a difference and you just speak to them like you would anybody else. And then you might learn that they may need certain accommodations in the way they communicate. And then you figure that out, but you start from a place of presuming competence. So I'd say that's the most common issue that we deal with and, and the most troubling. And, so and really, how best have you redirected people? Well, it depends on the situation. You know, my wife and I joke, we don't feel like being disability rights advocates every second of our lives. You know, so sometimes <laughs> you just, it depends on the situation. Sometimes you just blow it off and you don't make a big deal of it. Other times I will say to someone, you know, Sam will just graduate from high school and he's in college now and just kind of wait and, and let them understand what they were doing. You know, they were speaking to him like a little kid or he actually has, you know, he uses a communication device for a lot of his language. He does have a button on it that says, you know, I'm 19 years old, right? Why are you talking to me like a five-year-old? Oh, that's <laughs> he great. <laughs> he doesn't like to use it very much because he's very non-confrontational, but it's oh. there when he needs it. But so, you know, there are a variety of approaches. I think, I think the most valuable thing is to just quickly let people know my son's in college, you know, yeah, that gives him a sense of, well, yeah, <laughs> don't talk to him that way. Yeah. That's actually, you just described, covered the whole issue about danger of low expectation, mm-hmm. low expectations. And one of the things that I find, and simply like exposure is the key. Mm-hmm. I think people suffer from not that they don't have that exposure, but they have not made that opportunity available to themselves. They haven't engaged. They haven't jumped in to find out more about the other person. And that right. to me is the highest form of close-mindedness that I yeah. see. Yeah. You know, there's a great expression. One of my early mentors is and was a man named Norman Kuntz, K-U-N-C. He's an incredible disability rights advocate based in in the Vancouver, Canada area. And he spoke to that leadership group that I did when I was young. And, you know, he was the one who said first to me, if you gave me a pill to cure my cerebral palsy, I wouldn't take it. This is who I am. It's a part of who I am. So that's, you know, again, how Samuel feels now. But he has a great expression he calls, seek the story in the stranger. And the idea is that, you know, you see someone that is different than how you're used to interacting with someone or somebody that doesn't you don't quite understand where they're coming from. Seek out their story, you know, talk to them, try and understand where they're coming from. What's their, what is it? And everybody has a story. Everyone has a story and you just, you need to be active in, in seeking that out and showing empathy and understanding and, and more than anything, listening, the ability to listen. I just love that. Seek the story in the stranger. Mm. Beautiful. Isn't it? Yeah. And the thought that comes to mind, Dan, is this uh, human beings are wired for storytelling 
and we make connections through others, through stories of each other. And I think if we just allow that to happen, I think there's a wonderful way to kind of find just human connection. And I don't see there needs to be any special like workshopping and seminaring to how to how do I connect to people with disabilities, you know, uh, right. how do I connect with people who look different than me? I think get to know them, get to spend some time with them, right. don't be afraid of them. But you um, need the opportunity to do that. And that's where I think society's systems of segregation are so troubling because, you know, you don't understand what it's like to live with a disability, just as you don't understand what it's like to be of a different ethnicity or nationality or, or racial group than you are, or a different sexual orientation than you are, unless you have friends who have that diversity, or if you're in <laughs> school alongside people with that diversity, or in, in the workplace, or in community. And so that's why I'm so adamantly you know, in favor of and, and working towards inclusive education, because I don't think you can truly understand that range of experience unless you are living it and or, or living at least living next to people and alongside people who experience it. Uh, and, it's know, why, and let me just say it's why I love being a storyteller, as you just said, because short of living it, at least I can bring people into the lives of all these interesting people with disabilities and their families through film. And I think, you know, I'm hopeful that no matter how our society continues to evolve and change technologically and socially and politically, as you said, I think storytelling is going to remain. And I don't think that can be for the most part done by robots or done by by automation. No. <laughs> I think that real human beings need to continue to tell stories. And I just love the medium of film for that kind of immersive experience of bringing people into other people's lives. You know, being a speech and language pathologist, I work with a range of communication disorders. And so ever since my kids were probably six or eight, they have come to my clinic and I have done a lot of outings with people with autism or brain injury uh -huh. or stuttering or voice disorders. And one of the biggest suffering that came to a lot of these children was being ostracized for being different, mm -hmm. different sounding, different looking, or just not being looking odd, let's say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and one of the things I would t encourage my children to say, like, just tell him, can you not do that? And they're like, no, mom, I can't tell him. I said, mm. no, he, no normal peer is giving that feedback, but this is the reason he's not being included. But mm. you are a safe person for you. You're the safest person they can be with who is lovingly going to tell them to stop. And so I had one young boy who was 12 who was obsessed with these uh, giant roller coasters and he would mm -hmm. and he couldn't talk about anything but roller coasters. So my children who also loved Disney and we had been to many places where roller coasters were there. So they first had this encounter and didn't coach them. And they, this young man started talking about roller coasters and my children were instructed to be very cooperative, playful and engage. And, yeah. and they, so they started talking about roller coasters. And then afterwards, they started looking at me like, roller coaster or no roller coaster and i'm like yeah. no roller coaster <laughs> yeah so they Although, have to find the courage to say no can we talk about something i like right. you know? but it's a it, and i agree it's a fine line though because on one hand you certainly want to have that give and take and certainly people who might get fixated on something could benefit from learning how to turn their attention but i also think that our society has very narrow definitions of what is normal and what is typical you know yeah. so let's say a person with autism does a lot of hand flapping right which is a very common characteristic of some autism do you tell them to stop hand flapping or do you say well we just have to get used to your hand flapping because that's just part of who you are you know samuel can often vocalize because he has trouble controlling his vocal cords because of his cerebral palsy he sometimes has vocalizations during school that are not necessarily in keeping with the conversation, you know, but he's just, sounds are just coming out. The peers just get used to it and they've gotten used to it. And, and I, we never hear complaints. We just hear that, you know, that's Samuel and that's just what he does. And so I think there's also that, you know, there's also this broadening the acceptable 
norms of what is acceptable and what is just a natural part of our diversity. So it's a complicated topic. Yeah, no, and I I often describe this to people that it's like Goldilocks effect. Mm -hmm. You know, it can be too big. It can be too small. It has to be just right. But that just right is contextually sensitive and it's individually uh, appropriate. It's subjective and it's culturally it's subjective. subjective too. It's yes. culture. And if you think about disability as one of our, as a culture or autism or whatever it might be, you know, they have their own culture. You know, I'm not a person with autism, but people with autism have their own cultural norms and we should respect those, you know, and, and understand that just because they're not our norms, we are the dominant culture, like any dominant culture. We meaning people who don't have disabilities, the, ideally the dominant culture becomes more accepting of minority cultures and more respectful of them. Yeah. And I think the only point that I was trying to make, even with my, you know, my giving opportunity for these children with disabilities to interact with proto-normal kids, which is my kids, was only to give them an opportunity to give feedback, not Mm -hmm. to correct them and fix them, but understand that it is possible to receive feedback so that you can speak each other's language. Because that's when the communication gets completed, right? If I'm saying something and you never understand me, and if other person adjusts, but I never do, then there's meeting of the minds may not happen. And you, mm-hmm. as you perfectly mentioned that it doesn't need to be, I have to 100% speak your language, but I need to make effort to translate some of the words that I never understand what you mean by them. Right. But if I understand that's part of your repertoire, then I can say, oh, this means this to me. Sure, and have that back and forth. Although I push you back, I, I challenge you to think about one thing. You're using the word normal to describe your kids, which would suggest these other kids are not normal. And so I would, you know, so I think <laughs> keep that in mind in your language. Yes, and I apologize. You're absolutely right. What I mean, uh, you know, what is neurotypical? Sorry, that's what. Sure, uh, neurotypical is a good word. Neurotypical <laughs> is a better word than normal. That's that's right. just <laughs> exactly. And Sorry, I that's actually even like about. See what I mean about being the, no, don't add it. It's part of the conversation, but it's 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 this is what I mean about not. I don't want to do this every day. Be the disability rights advocate, but it's also sometimes helpful to just point out things that all of us chat fall into. And listen, if I hadn't had this experience, if I wasn't working in the disability world full time, if I wasn't at the Institute on Disability, I wouldn't have that sensibility, you know, for all those. You're right, and this is truly a slip of the tongue because this is such an important part of what I do every day. That that who is making the most effort, and I feel as an advocate for children with and adults with disabilities, that if all the burden is put on those who are already dealing with the disadvantages created by their disability, we are being right. unfair. Right. Uh, and so uh, what burden are you willing to share? I, I do think that as we went back and forth about this, that the knowledge is to make allowances for this conversation to happen, to even see, it's like, to me, it's like you, you're coming to my house for dinner and I need to really take the time to understand what you would like to eat and not like to eat, you know? Right. <laughs> and that conversation right. doesn't mean that I'm never going to cook what you don't like or I only cook this so you eat what I have but just that having that wonderful human negotiation to say I would love to see you being part of my life and this is what I'm willing to do is this helping you right and and that's why I think that's why it's important too to look at the most marginalized groups in our culture and in this case disability which is you know why my most recent project, Intelligent Lives, focused so much on people with intellectual disabilities because statistically, people with intellectual disabilities are the most segregated group of people in the, in the United States and, and internationally. I mean, in the, in the U.S., only 17% of students with a label of intellectual disability are included in regular education, and only about 40% will graduate, and then only about 15% of adults with intellectual disability will be employed. And those are the worst statistical numbers of any subgroup of disability. So, that's why I decided to look at this whole notion of how, you know, how do we 
perceive intelligence and how do we treat people with intellectual disabilities in school and life and are there ways to shift that paradigm to expand our, our perception of intelligence beyond things like IQ tests or SAT scores or any standardized tests and look more broadly at how people can contribute to the world in very interesting and sophisticated and compelling ways that can't be measured by any numeric tests. And then who are the paradigm shifters? And that's when I ended up finding my, my three main subjects for my film, Micah, Nair, and Naomi, and followed them for, for three years in order to make the film Intelligent Live. So, you know, that, that's really what drove me to make this film was thinking not, Samuel's not the only one that deserves to be included. It really, I really believe that all students, regardless of their disability, have, have, should have the chance to be included in regular school and, and in college and in employment. You know, you bring this repeatedly, you're hitting on uh, certain aspects of this process of coming to that place where a, a lovely human encountering can happen, which uh, uh, you said, changing minds, you know, looking at things broadly and shifting paradigm. Mm -hmm. And from the work of executive function that I do, one of the biggest challenges, uh, there, there are two roadblocks in terms of one's own cognitive and uh, mm -hmm. social emotional abilities that comes in the way. And then there's a cultural roadblocks too. And that is the inability to shift mental set is a true genuine cognitive limitation related to executive function. And it, and second is attention, not being attention or not giving enough invested awareness-centric focus to other person tends to uh, be create roadblock in understanding needs of others, seeing the points of view of others, mm. and really taking the onus on changing your own ways. And so I, I do that individual work. And then I see also societally certain, you know, like privileged lives tend to be less flexible. I'm not sure if you're aware of that uh, the research. You know, they did this study where researchers <laughs> literally stood at this traffic light and then the uh, stop sign, I think, four-way stop sign. And they found that people driving uh, expensive luxury cars tended to roll through the stop sign hmm. much more than people who drove <laughs> less expensive cars. So there's oh, a little bit of arrogance associated with privilege. And, and yeah. I think this is a privilege of being, uh, being uh, you know, neurotypical, that there's a little bit of arrogance that you adjust to me rather than I adjust to you. Right. And it's interesting you say that because one of the three people I filmed, Micah Fialka Feldman, who's a, a Syracuse University student, he's actually co-teaching classes up there. He's got a really wonderful circle of friends, graduate students, doctoral students, very full life, has a girlfriend. And he was given an IQ of 40 when he was a kid, which those wow. of you who know IQ scores would be considered you know, profoundly intellectually disabled. Anyway, he is one of the most kind of responsive, empathetic, socially adept people I've ever met. And so, as you say, it's like, what are we measuring here and what are we valuing in society? If we have somebody that can be a wonderful friend, that can be caring and, and be with you and really tuned in, is, is there any reason that we should exclude them from any aspect of society or value <laughs> their skills any less than any other skill? And, you know, I think I've thought a lot about this. Why are we so unwilling to shift and accommodate. And I think primary reason is speed of processing. I think one of the things that people feel by associating with people with disability will be bringing on this slowness, which will uh, you know, create a disadvantage for me because things are not going to move fast and I won't move fast in, in life. I won't go places. I won't reach the accolades or the whatever, whatever the invisible heights that I'm trying to achieve. You know, there's yeah. that fear, which is so sad because in fact, that's where the most beautiful thing is happening, which is the human, like you said, this most, most resilient and most kind and compassionate human being that you will ever see is happening mm -hmm. right in that space. 
Right, exactly. And you put you put your finger on something really interesting that I'm sure would take a lot of time that we may not have to discuss. But, you know, I think that we, again, some of this is cultural. I think certain cultures are more about speed, 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 fast, 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 go, go, go than other cultures. But I also think sometimes what we lose in all that is what are we really living for? You know, are we living? And I, listen, I'm to blame as much as anyone. You know, I like to have very productive days. I work really hard. I like to move fast <laughs> in my life. But I also sometimes just like to slow down and just be with my family or read a book or take a walk or just smell the fresh air. I just appreciate the moment. And that, you know, when people look back on their lives and say, what were your favorite parts of your life? It probably wasn't, you know, commuting to work or rushing to do this or speeding to do that. It was probably these really wonderful moments that you just had time to cherish your family, your friends, your relationships in your own time. And those of us in the world who can actually take time to do that can learn from each other and i believe me i need to learn that from a lot of other people i, I have a lot of work to do in, in my own area in that realm you know i have two young boys who are i think um, same age as your children one is going to turn 21 uh, pretty soon and one is 23 and mm -hmm. uh, this christmas i gave them uh, pico ayer's book uh, you know art of stillness and uh, he says tongue in cheek that you know we take time to go on vacations or to these meditation and retreats, uh, places to find a way to slow down, and then we come back to busy lives. But we have really reluctant to consider how about slowing down where we are. And, right. and that has been like a true mission. You know, a lot of my work, I have found that, you know, one of the ways to master your lack of, uh, you know, being able to focus or distractibility or inability to shift your mental set or inability to remember to remember all that requires time and right. it requires you to give yourself that time and that requires attention and awareness <laughs> and and right. we, we just don't have time it's like driving on the highway at full speed because we are running late for an appointment with an empty tank we are thinking if i pull over to put gas i'm going to be late how yeah, foolish <laughs> exactly and i think all my films i i have really try hard to find people that i learn from and that i can learn from and so you know, when I did, including Samuel, I obviously learned from Samuel and all the people I filmed. I, I did a big film called Who Cares About Kelsey? And that was about a student with emotional behavioral disabilities talking about what it took for her to navigate high school and the people around her that helped her be successful. And then my most recent film I did, you know, Intelligent Lives, I also did four companion films just on people with disabilities transitioning from high school to college and career and how they're, they all are using such innovative approaches to successful transition. And then another film I did last year was on national television here It's called Mr. Connolly Has ALS. And I, it was a very profound experience for me because it was about Samuel's own high school principal who lost the ability to speak because of ALS and then transitioning to being a person with a disability. And then he and Samuel actually ended up starting to communicate with each other using their communication devices because they both used devices because oh. they couldn't speak easily. And it was really a film, a very profound film for me to make and I think for people to watch because it's it was very much about what it means to be human and how perceptions of him, of Mr. Connolly, changed from other people once he lost his ability to speak. People started speaking to him differently, even though he was the same person inside. But also the great appreciation he started having for his students with disabilities because he could never understand what it truly meant to be disabled until he became a disabled person himself. It, just so I encourage your listeners, that film is free to watch on YouTube now. They just uh, you know search Mr. Connolly, C-O-N-N-O-L-L-Y as ALS, or if you can put the link in your in your podcast. And also all the transition films I did as part of Intelligent Lives are free to watch online. So, 
Yeah. I have watched uh, three of your films, not the most recent one, which I will, but every uh, film has made me cry. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think the, what, what is really touching about that is you have a wonderful way of showing humanity in me. I'm not talking about your subjects, mm. but, you know, I think as I see saw every every main lead of your movie just reminded me how hard life is and, and I'm not doing enough. You know, I'm just thinking in what ways can I affect life more positively the way these individuals are affecting their own lives and making a difference. Uh, it's truly genuinely a wonderful experience. And I highly encourage everybody to watch these films with your family members. If you are not as lucky as I am to work with individuals with disabilities so closely, this will be bring you close. Dan, thank you so much for what you do and what you have done, telling your personal story and most importantly, standing up for the rights of those who don't have the privilege to do so readily or easily. As we close our podcast, do you have anything else you would like to share with us? No, I just appreciate the time so much. And I, I, we do have one site where people can go to kind of get links to all my films. It's just danhabibfilms.org. So just want to thank you very much and thank you for the work you do. Samuel's had many amazing speech therapists in his life who have been, you know, done so much. And certainly in your work in executive functioning, it also rings very true to me for, for my older son. Samuel's executive functioning is amazing. He never forgets anything. <laughs> but <laughs> my older son, Isaiah, has needed some support in that area. And, and he is now finding his way and, and also finding his own strengths and, and tapping into those. It's a, it's a beautiful thing to behold. So thank you for having me today. Absolutely. Great pleasure to have you and talk with you. Thank you. All right. That's all the time we have for today. On behalf of our host, Sucheta Kamath, today's guest, Dan Habib, and all of us at Cerebral Matters, thank you for tuning in and listening today. And we look forward to seeing you again right here next week on Full Prefrontal. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive functions. To contact our host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive functions, visit her website at CerebralMatters.com. That's CerebralMatters.com. Tune in next week for the next informative episode of Full Prefrontal.